We pick up in our series on the life of Abraham in chapter 20 of Genesis. To refresh your memory a little bit and to set this up, in chapter 19, we read last week the, the story of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and it's, it's a story of judgment. What follows is a, there's a brief story at the end of chapter 19 about Lot's family, and there's some horrible things that go on in it. It sets up the, really the ancestry of the neighboring countries to Israel later down the road, if you're wondering why that story is there and why we're kind of skipping over it. Um, but we're continuing in, in this main story of Abraham, and at the beginning of chapter 20, we discover that Abraham and Sarah do the same thing that they did way back in chapter 12. They show up at a town that they don't know, this time a place named Gerar, and they tell people that, because they're scared for their safety, that Sarah is Abraham's sister. And the only guy in town who doesn't have to get into some sort of marriage negotiation is the king. At this time, it's a guy named Abimelech. And he takes Sarah into his house to be his wife. And God shows up this time in, in a dream. And after that dream, and he wakes from that dream, uh, or Abimelech wakes from that dream, that's where we're going to pick up with our reading in verse 8. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men, who were, and the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, what have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me these things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me at every place at which, to which we come. Say of me, he is my brother." Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech. And also healed his wife and female servants so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, let's pray that this story will show us more of what it means to live by faith in the Lord. Father, we have a, a lot of stories in your word that uh, are sometimes odd, they're strange, and yet there are in these stories so many things we can learn about what it means to follow you, sometimes cautionary tales, but also we learn the themes of all it is that Jesus will do to save us. So we pray that 
Not only would you teach us what it means to follow you, but more than that, show us what Jesus has done for us. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. This story is, or feels a little bit like, haven't we done this before? And it's not just because they hatched the same scheme that didn't work out before, and it doesn't work out again, but that over and over again, we see in Abraham's life the same thing that we see in our own lives often enough. That right on the heels of a profound experience with the Lord, we are back to the same old dumb ideas we had before. The same old foolishness that we've been up to before that. You know, this is uh, Reformation Sunday, (laughs) Uh, which is, you know, most of us Protestants, especially Presbyterians, don't have holy days, but we still have a Reformation Day. Um, It's no different from Abraham's time than it was in the 16th century than it is right now. That the church is constantly making mistakes. God's people are constantly failing and have to come back to him. And what, so one of the things we learn from this passage is what it means that we are screwed up. What it means that we have sinned and what the ramifications are of that. So we'll see first our ineptitude. We'll see second, others' indignation at it. And third, God's intervention. Our ineptitude, others' indignation, and God's intervention. So first, our ineptitude. And, you know, we we start by thinking about Abraham's screw-ups. And there are many. And I got to say, it's not a lot better for his son, certainly not better for his grandson, and on and on and on. If you read throughout, if we, you keep following in Genesis, the story keeps repeating itself. Of course, it keeps repeating itself over and over again in the rest of Scripture. But, you know, think about how this works out. Abraham has this plan, this scheme that he and Sarah run when they show up in a town that they don't know. We talked about this in, in more depth back in chapter 12. I'm not going to rehearse all that, but, uh, but just to summarize... And we actually learned some of that, what we talked about from this passage, that in fact, Sarah is his half-sister, so they weren't, they were just telling part of the truth. And by the way, if that bothers you, the half-sister thing, that is against God's law. <laughs> uh, it is. Anyway, uh, the, so they, they tell a kind of half-truth, Right? That's the plan, tell a half-truth. And we talked about how that protects Abraham in a very violent world that the ancient world was. That was protecting Abraham and how they probably took an educated guess that that would protect Sarah, but, but in the slim chance that the king took interest, right? She was the one who bore all the liability. And, uh, And again, this has happened. The second time. Now, we don't know how many times they did this. You know, in 
in verses 11 through 13, Abraham's explaining it. And in 13, he tells us that he says, everywhere we go. Now, that can't mean every single place because surely some people knew that Sarah was his wife. But it certainly means that this is something they did when they felt like they were in a dangerous position, right? And so they probably ran this scheme multiple times. And maybe it worked other times that we don't know about, but it certainly doesn't on the two occasions that we do. And what's interesting about all of this is that they had just met God. The previous three chapters that we've talked about, 17, 18, 19, have, was a sequence in which God shows up and meets Abraham face to face. It's the longest conversation God has with Abraham. He reminds him of the covenant. He gives him the sign of the covenant. He tells him about the son that he's going to have, Isaac. There's a, he, he even tells him that he's going to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. And the reason he tells him that is so that he and his children will walk in his ways. And then he witnesses. The narrator goes out of his way at the end of chapter 19 to make sure we know Abraham was watching when judgment fell on Sodom and Gomorrah. And then they move. And then it's just back to the same old way way that they used to do things. I mean, that's frustrating, infuriating, and yet also exactly the same thing we do. It's, you know, to, to do this sort of thing, we have to be able to convince ourselves, I'm sure Abraham did this, that what I'm doing is not that big a deal. It's certainly nothing like what was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. And again, not to play moral equivalency, but it's also a very dangerous game to convince yourselves that your sins are not as bad as those of others. What's certainly going on is a failure to trust in the Lord. God has promised to watch over them, and over and over and over again, we see Abraham believing that he needs to take matters into his own hands. That he needs to come up with the right idea. And it's worth stopping and reflecting on ways in which we make our own sins acceptable. You know, sometimes we're, we're conditioned. You know, the family you grow up in has its own things that it kind of overlooks. You know, and it's one of the funniest things, and I don't mean funny in a <laughs> laugh out loud way, but in a very frustrating way, when you get married and you discover all the things that your family thought were okay and that you kind of thought were okay until your spouse is like, what is this? How is that okay that this person says this or that this person does that, you know? Uh, our families have, you know, it is funny how they perpetuate sinful patterns. Uh, of course, our friends, right, normalize what is and isn't acceptable. There are broader societal issues, right, that are acceptable and not. Uh, we touched on, you know, briefly last week, of course, like the sexual mores of modern Western society and how different they are than God's standards. There's, we could think about a lot of other things. I mean, think about how we speak, how we communicate with one another. 
And I don't just mean with our words. I also mean how we communicate online, all these other things. I mean, are these those socially acceptable? Are these the way God would have us talk with others? Sometimes we convince ourselves that we have extenuating circumstances. I know I'm not supposed to do this like this, but, you know, there's these other things going on. Of course, it's amazing how often we're under extenuating circumstances, which hardly seems to make them extenuating. Uh, There are lots of reasons that we think what we're doing is okay. And of course, there is the standard logic of, well, no one's getting hurt. I'm actually doing this to protect other people, which is almost always a lie. It's really to protect ourselves. And we convince ourselves that we're doing something good for others. Which puts, you know, in one way, it puts a finger on something that's also at work in our own logic of sin is our lack of love for others. That's why we love to convince ourselves that actually doing this thing that we know we're not supposed to do will be loving to them. But in fact, it's a lie. Because almost always if that person finds out what's going on, they're not going to like it. They're not going to like it one bit. That they've been deceived over and over again. That you haven't treated them well. That you've treated them differently than other people. Certainly Abraham, right, he's not thinking about the ramifications of his choices on others. I mean, he hardly seems to be thinking about it about Sarah. He certainly hasn't given any thought about its ramifications for Abimelech and for the, the people that they're living among. And, of course, we're told over and over again in the Bible, we're shown it in stories after story after story after story, we're told explicitly theologically that there are also people who are in the church that are among God's people, as far as we know, right, who are also going to do evil things. Not just do evil things, but have evil intention for it. It's a, there's a, you know, there's a farewell, passage, farewell uh, address that Paul gives to the church in Ephesus in Acts 20. Uh, it's, it's a fascinating piece in and of itself. But he, he, he meets with the elders of the church in Ephesus. He spent a long time in Ephesus. He's going to Jerusalem, knows uh, he will probably be arrested and die. Um, and he's saying farewell, and he tells them this. He says, I know, this is Acts 20, verse 29. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, presumably meaning the elders, will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Isn't that strange? how inevitable he sees that. And if you pay attention all throughout the New Testament, there's always these warnings, right? That there are people in the church that claim to be from God, but are not. The thing is, nobody thinks they are. Nobody thinks they're a wolf. Passing as a sheep, like some kind of Looney Tunes 
cartoon, right? No, nobody thinks that that's who they are. But we're told that there are. See, part of, our, part of what is confusing about the church is that we forget what the church really is. And those who are in the church are sometimes the ones who are most forgetful of what it is, that it is a hospital for the sick. That it is a place for sinners to be saved. And so often, and I'm talking about in the church here, we are naive about this. And I'm not saying we ought to look around suspiciously at everybody. I'm saying we ought not be surprised that people sin. After all, right, Jesus said, I came to call not the righteous, but sinners. There are, in other words, no good people in the church. That's an uncomfortable thing to say. (laughs) There are no good people in the church. There are only sinners that are being saved. This is one of the great reformational truths, right? That we that this side of eternity, we are always both that the that the saints are always both saint and sinner. You know what what had crept in in the late Middle Ages was a, a, a belief that we could kind of perfect ourselves or get kind of close to that. And the truth of the matter is, no, we're not. And the more we live with that delusion, the more difficult the life of the church actually is, the more punishing, and really the more we start to live by lies because we're trying to convince ourselves that it's okay, that we're better than we, think, than we actually are. Jesus does say that they will know you by your love. But right before that, in John 13, he says, love because I first loved you. Whatever love we have is a gift from the Lord. In fact, it's precisely what Paul says in Romans 5, that the love of God is being poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. We don't come with what we have. We come receiving what the Lord has given and passing on what the Lord has given. So that whatever is good that's going on in the church is all God's work. Without qualification. It's not the works of our hands, but His work. And the church then... is a place where we can be honest about who we are and about what's going on. But honesty's tough. You know, it's tough to be vulnerable. If you're somebody who likes to think that you have it all together, and let's be honest, a lot of us like to at least put that image out there that we have it all together, then vulnerability is a liability. You won't, we won't be able to be vulnerable because sooner or later, people are going to discover that you don't have it together. 
And here's the thing, if you're somebody that knows you don't have it together, but you come to the church thinking that it's the people in the church that are going to put you back together, then vulnerability will also be dangerous because the people in the church don't put you back together. You will end up being disappointed, I can guarantee it. It's not the people in the church that are the answer. And of course, the sins of the church lead to, you know, our own ineptitude leads to indignation from others, and rightfully so, and that's exactly what happens. In, in the part that we, we kind of skipped past, God shows up in a dream to Abimelech, tells him what he's done, that he's taken the wife of a prophet. He uses the word prophet to describe Abraham, which is odd. But uh, he says, you've taken the wife of a prophet into your own house, and you're a dead man. <laughs> and he says, whoa, whoa, I didn't know. I didn't know what was going on. Now, Listen, the passage isn't focused on the uh, ethics of consent and other things going on around Abimelech. It's not the choices of Abimelech that are primarily the concern of the text. But he was deceived, right? He was deceived, and he points that out to Abraham. He comes back to, he goes back to Abraham in verse 8 uh, and following, right? And he says, what is this you've done to us? You did a thing you know you shouldn't have done. You set us up. Now, we learned late in the game, <laughs> uh, late in the passage, that there, there were other things going on, that Abimelech was sick in some way, that, and apparently this had been some amount of time because it's become clear that nobody in his household is having children. Fertility, again, a big deal in the ancient world. So, you know, this has been going on for a little while. He's been set up. Of course he's angry. Of course he's indignant. And he should be. Abraham offers the lamest excuses. I mean, this is not likely to help, right? He, because uh, in verse, what is it, uh, verse 10, Abimelech says, what did you see that you did this thing, right? Like, what, what did you see that you decided you needed to lie? And this is what he said. He says, well, I thought there's no fear of God at all in this place, which first of all is likely not to land well with Abimelech. I mean, I don't know how faithful he thinks he is to his gods or not, but they, he probably does not understand a distinction that Abraham is making. And secondly, he's looking at Abraham and is like, and you're acting in the fear of God? In other words, whatever, you know, whether he takes, in, you know, umbrage to being told that he's not actually a good guy. He's looking at Abraham being like, you hypocrite. What, what are you doing? You know, what did you just do? And then he goes on and tells him the story in which he admits that he didn't tell the truth. That he told a half truth. And again, telling the half truth always makes sense to you in the moment, but is always a source of indignation by those who are Told the half truth. Right? Because you know you were being misled. And he tells him this story, and you know, it ends without Abimelech responding. Now, part of that is probably just 
like many of the stories, we get kind of a slice of the, the whole conversation. But I also kind of think it's like, well, it hardly deserves a response. <laughs> and even when he goes and then gives gifts to Abraham, as God told him to do in the dream, he makes a point to say, this is to prove, <laughs> this is to prove innocence, right? There, there, nothing went on here. He still wants to make sure that's on the record. Now, again, the concern of the passage, though, is not to parse out Abimelech. It is to see the hypocrisy of Abraham. And to see that Abimelech is rightfully angry. And again, we see this throughout Scripture, throughout the Old Testament, into the New Testament, again and again and again, that God's people do things against one another, and they do things to those that are not part of God's people that they shouldn't do. Think about in First. There's a, a story in First Corinthians. Well, it's a letter from Paul to this church, and you know there's another kind of scandalous situation going on. And Paul's indignant. He says, look, it's of a kind that's not tolerated even among the pagans. And believe me, the Greco-Roman pagans tolerated quite a bit. Right? He's like, this is unbelievable. You can't let this go on. But this is the way of it, right? There's all these scandals in the Bible. We go into church history and, it's, you know, there's so many scandals. You could hardly create a whole list. We don't need all the history, right? You just... Think about recent memory within the church, right? Televangelists, hypocritical social critics. Think about scandals, the things that have been covered up. We can go on, right? And you, if you've been in the church very long, you know of situations. Maybe you haven't personally experienced them in a church, but you probably have a friend who's experienced Something that, of course, everybody on the outside of the church would be indignant about. And sometimes it's petty, almost silly, yet it's destructive. Sometimes it's a, you know, spectacular meltdown. It, whether, it's being, whether a church is being hollowed out from the inside slowly over the years or whether it explodes spectacularly, you know, these stories are not hard to find. Even now, in particular now, as, you know, it seems that we have kind of entered into a post-Christian moment in Western history, it is a strange thing that those who are non-religious often seem to be more morally sound than those that are. In fact, that's kind of commonly the narrative, right? Sometimes maybe that's true. I think as we talk about the, the being a post, you know, we, I, I mention it quite a lot, I guess, uh, that we're in a post-Christian kind of society or one that's becoming increasingly more post-Christian. And sometimes that can sound like a big downer. 
And in some ways, you know, that can, we can think, and it's not necessarily wrong, to think about what has been lost. And we can fixate on that. And again, that, I, I, there is some things lost in that. I'm not hearing that. But it's also an opportunity. And this is something I hope becomes clear to all of us is that the, the moment that we can no longer assume that others know the good news of Jesus or have ever really heard it is actually not a moment of liability. It is a moment for clarity. It is a moment we can, we can actually talk to, pe- to people about Jesus and not assume that they just grew up hearing a kind of moralistic Christianity. It is one in which they do not know the story. And the vocabulary of sin and repentance and other things like that are meaningless. And so we get to go back and talk through what those mean. It's a, it is a time we can actually reset in some ways what we're talking about. And here's the deal. When it comes to the sin of the church, it is actually an opportunity to be clear about what the church really is. That the church is not a place of, of people who are saved by how good they are. It is a place that is saved by the goodness of God. Not of our own making, which means repentance itself. It's at the very heart of the gospel. Which should be a mark of the church all the time. It is an opportunity for us to move out in repentance. You know, sometimes there are, there are folks in the church who bristle at that idea, who bristle that when the church goes back and looks at things that we need to repent of. And look, I mean, sometimes there's posturing in that. Sometimes there's a kind of virtue signaling, and that's not healthy, and I agree with that. But Repentance should never be seen as a humiliating thing. Actually, you know who should know that best? Uh, People that identify with the Reformation. Because 504 years ago, today, (laughs) on Halloween, uh, when Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg, do you know what the number one thesis on that was? Probably many of you have probably not read it before. And it's a little, there's a lot of it that's a little confusing if you don't know kind of what's going on in the Middle Ages. But the first point is beautifully succinct. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed that the entire life of believers be one of repentance. In other words, repentance isn't just this thing we do one time. The sinner's prayer or something like that, which is fine in and of itself, but that's not a one-time moment, right? That is our whole lives should be marked by repentance. C.S. Lewis put it this way in Mere Christianity. He says, repentance is not something God demands of you before he will take you back. It's simply a description of what going back to him is like. You get that difference? See, the The truth of the gospel teaches us that we don't repent so that we can get to another stage with God. It is to say, when we come back to God, repentance is what we're doing. 
And we're freed by what God has done so that repentance is not an embarrassment, but an act of freedom. It's only when we start to think like, well, sin, or my, you know, my sin, let's not just abstract, treat it abstractly, right? My sin is kind of an incidental thing that I do. There's some bad habits I need to maybe get over. And then I'll go, you know, be with God. Spend time with God. Enjoy being with God. It's not until we start to understand that sin is written into the fabric of who I am that we start to understand that repentance is always part of coming to God. And that repentance is actually a freedom because it means that this thing written into the fabric of who I am is not the end of the story. That God is dealing with that. Which gets us, of course, to God's intervention. God intervenes here not because Abraham is a good man. I hope you noticed that already. I hope that has dawned on you thus far. It is not because Abraham is good, but because God has called him. But because God is gracious, he is working to save Abraham. And just like back in chapter 12, the strangest thing, Abraham sins, the sin comes to light, and Abraham gets blessed through it. I mean, doesn't that get your feathers a little ruffled? How is it that this guy sins and then God blesses him? Over and over again. He gets richer because he, after he sinned. And here's the thing. Of course it ruffles our feathers because we don't actually believe the gospel. Because we still think, we still fall back into thinking, it's supposed to be about me being a good person and getting rewarded, and that is not the good news. That is not the good news. That is why grace is a scandal, because it is about you being a sinner and God still blessing you and caring for you and bringing you in. That's why it's a scandal. And we're scandalized by it because we still think so often that I'm not quite that bad. That the work of grace doesn't have to be that deep, right? And if one, there's one thing we're learning about Abraham through, the, through this you know, life of this man of faith is that it is that bad. That living by faith means constantly seeing the depth of my need, but here's the thing, also seeing the depth of God's provision. Because God is at work in Abraham's life. God is going to provide what is needed. And of course, it is when God sends the one righteous man. Now he provides all that we need. I mean, running throughout the story of Abraham is this fundamental problem, right? That Abraham is not righteous and God is blessing him. 
You might say that's the whole problem all throughout the Old Testament that's waiting to be revealed. How is it that God justifies the ungodly? Justifies the unrighteous. It is the scandal of the gospel that he sent his only son as the one righteous person to live a life that we could not and would not live in our place, to die the death that we deserved, to raise him up from the dead so that we could be with him. That's the good news. Not that we were righteous, but that God was. Not that we were good, but that God was. In fact, more than that, it's not just that he's been righteous and good, but that his goodness has been poured out to us in grace. That when we were undeserving, he acted on our behalf. Has done what we failed to do, what we could not do. When we stop to think about who we are, both individually and as his church, the reality is that we are sinners being saved. And what that ought to teach us then is a different lens by which we see all these things. And we talked about how sinful the church has been. And if your lens is, well, who are the good people and how do I get in with them? then of course you will leave the being pretty cynical about what the church is. And the only way you're going to find the good people <laughs> to be identified with is to fool yourself into thinking that such a community actually exists. And you may find it elsewhere, but it will be a delusion. The only way we find ourselves and put ourselves in the company of the righteous is by an act of delusion. But if we see ourselves and if we see the, war, the, the church through the lens of grace, then the failings of the church it's just an of course. But when we see people grow, and we do see changes, however incremental, then we see the work of God happening. That is the light cracking in. See, if we want to see the world as a place where good people get what they deserve. Any kind of honest assessment leads you to a very dark place, a very cynical place. But if we see the world as a place that God has entered into to save us by grace, where he is buying a people for himself and working in their midst to change them, then of course we come, not with naivete to what the church is. Not being surprised that there's sin here. But with hope. Because our hope is not in ourselves, right? 
Do you all know the Heidelberg Catechism? Some of you all will be familiar with this. It's another Reformation document, and the very first question is, what is your only hope in life and in death? And it's kind of a long answer, but the beginning of it is, and all of it flows out of this sentence, that I am, my only hope is that I am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That's our hope. That's what God does in the face of our sin. And the life of faith is not about clinging to the hope that I will someday get rid of these incidental bad habits and be somebody who's worthy on my own of being in God's presence. But rather our hope is that God is someone worthy. I should say his son is someone worthy of bringing us into God's presence. Our only hope is in Jesus. And as we think about this as, our, as a church, as we think about what it means for us, we always have to have this crystal clear that our hope is not in who we are. That our hope is not in our own righteousness, but our hope is in Jesus the one who laid down his life for us. So those of us who are sinners, all of you, will be brought by him into God's presence that we might enjoy him and glorify him forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son. Saying we thank you is really not saying enough. You know how often we like the delusions that we are good. We like the idea that we are a church that is pretty good. But teach us, Lord, that to put our hope in the works of our own hands is a lost cause but to hope instead in you, to hope in your Son, whose death and resurrection guarantee that anyone who comes to him, who comes in repentance, will never be turned away. Lord, we pray that our life as a church would be defined by repentance, not, as, not in a way that's groveling, in a way that is life-giving and freeing. For we know that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.